It is uh, another week in our study in the book of John. I've missed this study. We took off for missions, and I always love missions. I think it's a highlight. But uh, then I was gone last weekend at a, on a discipleship walk to experience that because uh, we have discipleship walks coming up in January for our youth and February for our men and, and women. And listen, I'd never been on one before, but now I am a believer. Um, I, I had a great experience, and I can't tell you about it because it's cultish. I know, as you, I know what you're thinking. It's not, though. It's incredible. Um, and I, if you've never been on one, I encourage you to be on to go, and I will be on you to go um, in a very kind pastoral way, of course. But uh, really excited about what God um, is going to do in the life of those in our church to experience that. If you've never been on one, ask somebody who's been on one, and they'll, they'll set your mind at ease. It's, it's well worth it. Uh, that's where my wife is today. Uh, you, don't, you didn't see her on, on the front row or on the platform, but I did put a substitute slow on the front row for me. Um, because my wife's not here to signal me to go slower. So it's there. It's there in big letters. So don't tell her that I, I replaced her. So my wife is gone for the weekend. She's experiencing the discipleship walk as well. And um, I asked her before she left, would you hide the candy because i be honest with you, I, I kind of have a candy problem. And she did. And so my son comes up to me, Manny, who's our, our third child, our middle son, and he says, Dad, can I have a piece of candy? And I was like, I wish I could say yes, but Mom hid the candy. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, but can I have a piece of candy? <laughs> this guy knows where the candy is. And I was like, but it's hidden. He's like, yeah. I'm just asking for permission, Dad, not location. <laughs> and I kind of pressed him a little bit, and he's like, Mommy told us not to tell you. <laughs> I, I did find the candy uh, because I, I had to change a light bulb, but I, I've promised I only have eaten a half a dozen pieces, not what I would normally eat. No, I did, but here's the deal. I, I think of that, that interaction with my son and how he was very careful with his words. He was telling the truth without lying, but he had his purpose and his agenda behind how he used truth. We do the same thing, don't we, when we're confronted? We're in this study on the book of John, and we're in John chapter 4, and we're going to get there in a moment, but the book of John, as I said from the very beginning of this of this study is to show us who Jesus is. Let's get a clear, fresh picture of Jesus individually and corporately and the renewal that comes with it because the person of Jesus is far greater than what we may think are the rules of Christianity. But sometimes it's not just about seeing Jesus. Sometimes Jesus wants to show us ourselves. And John chapter 4 is one of those passages. Very often we look at Jesus thinking, how do we follow his lead? Don't follow his lead as we go forward in this but submit to what he would do. He's the one who is showing us ourselves, and we are the one who uses language to dodge and tell the truth without telling the truth. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1. And as you do, let me give you... Not John chapter 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. And as you do that, let me give you a little more background, because I know it's been a while. We've taken some time off. Uh, written by the Apostle John in the late first century, it really, John focuses on Jesus' life and ministry, uh, but not so much the teaching, but really the action. 
Now remember that the, the church had started at the day of Pentecost, and now we've been going for some decades here before John writes this account. And he writes his purpose in this book. And I read this almost every week because I think it's important to understand as we look at each of these passages, that this is the thrust, this is his purpose in writing this, comes from John chapter 20. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. John wrote his book that we may believe and we may have life. And so there's very there's some certain characteristics. He targets unbelievers. He wants people very unapologetically to understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. From the onset, we've seen that. He's not hidden that fact. Now, let me just remind you where we've been recently. These first couple chapters of John, we've seen this replacement thing that Jesus is doing. He's replacing the old things of Jewish worship with the new. There is a new wine, remember that? There is a new temple. He is a new temple. There is a new birth with Nicodemus. And now we come to new water and new worship. Last week, my friend Greg Allison did a marvelous job filling in for me. Sometimes preachers don't like it when the guest preacher does a marvelous job, but he did. (laughs) He did a great job. And his big point was this. We exist for the purpose of lifting Jesus front and center. Jesus alone. So I really believe that this message builds right on that. Lifting Jesus front and center. Jesus alone. If you have your Bibles, read with me. John chapter 4. We're going to just read. Listen, this is a lengthy passage. So we're going to read a lot of it and we're going to skip a little bit. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Can I stop here real quick? Because I need to say this. We could spend weeks on this account. We're going to spend one Sunday on it. So there are some points that will not be made, but this thing is rich. So go back and read it. I may make some application that we didn't talk about, but this is rich. I really think we're going to focus on the heart of this message today. Verse 2, though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Let's stop there and talk about who who are the characters in this story and what what it's the setting and what we've just read in these first few verses. Who are the Samaritans? Like, we're really familiar with everyone, whether you grew up in church or have never set foot in the church. Most of us know the term a good Samaritan, so sometimes in our culture we call someone a Samaritan when they do something good. It's not what a Samaritan is. Let me, let me give you a little background, and maybe you know this, but if you don't, then now you'll know. Can I just say that that good Samaritan parable, Jesus used a Samaritan to be the hero because he was trying to shock and offend the religious crowd that day. A real brief picture without me rambling about what a Samaritan is, I'm going to borrow this from D.A. Carson, who's a biblical scholar um, that Greg Allison actually sat under, the guy who spoke last week. 
I love him, but I kind of hate him a little bit. Anyway, after the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, this is D.A. Carson talking about who the Samaritans are. So you remember the kingdom divided after Solomon in the Old Testament, we had the north and the south, Israel and Judah. In 722 to 721 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled in the land with foreigners, settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some, of the, some form of their ancient religion. After the exile, which is the southern kingdom in Babylon, after the Jews returned to their homeland, they viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 B.C., the Samaritans erected a rival temple in Mount Gerizim. See, there is an ethnic, a racial, and a religious uh, issue that's taking place here that, that, would, that would make Jews look down on Samaritans, that would want them to have nothing to do with the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, I could propose that maybe Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have went the long way around, which some Jews did, because, but Jesus had a purpose and he had a destiny in meeting this woman that we're about to read. So as far as Jews are concerned, Samaritans are ceremonially unclean, they're racially impure, they're religiously heretical, and they are to be avoided. That's why it's shocking when Jesus uses them as the hero of that good Samaritan story. So Jesus is not the model here, He's busting through barriers, and I know he's doing some things that he should not be doing. He's crossing to go reach people. And I want to say, a lot of times you can preach this passage saying, we should be like Jesus. Look at him crossing barriers and busting through them to, to reach people. That's good, and there's some application there. But to be honest with you, the heart of this message is not for us to be like Jesus, and I've already said this, but it's for us to see ourselves in this woman that we're about to read about. If you have your Bibles, we just had Jesus ask for a drink of water. And the response was like, why, why are you talking to me? Let's pick it up in verse 10. Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. Let me pause there and just say, remember throughout John so far in these first three chapters, we're in chapter four now, but we see this as a common thing through the book of John where Jesus is talking in a very physical, material conversation with somebody and he elevates it to a spiritual conversation and the people are not necessarily following, but he has a way to do that. He's doing it right here. She's speaking about... Uh, Jesus is offered living water, and she's saying, how can you give me water? You don't even have a rope. You're asking for me for a drink. All right, you got that. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never thirst again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Let's pause and stay here for just a little bit longer than we did on the last section. Once again, we have this multi-layer conversation that we see in Jesus. He makes a promise of living water, and the woman doesn't get it. Just like Nicodemus doesn't understand, how can you enter into your mother's womb again? But Jesus is elevating the conversation to talk about spiritual things. What, is this, what does this say about living water? Let's read them real quick. Verse 10 and verse 
13 are the words of Jesus. If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. That's the first thing he says about it. The next comes from verse 13. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink this water I will give, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So let's make some observations on those two quotes from Jesus in verse 10 and verse 13. First, this water that Jesus gives is a gift from God. Verse 10, if you only knew the gift of God, it's not just a gift of God, it's living water. And I will give you living water, once again in verse 10. And if you drink it, you will never thirst again. Those who drink, in verse 14, the water I give will never be thirsty again. Now I know that's kind of a problematic statement because we think, is it one of those things where we experience what Jesus has to give and then all of a sudden all of our cravings and desires and things go away. Not necessarily. That's not what he's saying here. I think the next part will help us understand. Verse 14, he says that this water becomes a spring that bubbles up, that wells up within us. We, those who have tasted this living water, will not just have a taste that will wipe everything out, but we will within us have the source of water to continue to drink from him and drink and drink this living water. That's how we never thirst again, because he provides within us this living water that takes root and, and becomes a, a, a well. And this water gives eternal life in verse 14. Pick it up with me. It's, it's hard for me not to preach my point when we're not there yet, but preach. Let me, let me, let me get to verse 15. Verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never thirst again, and I won't have to come here to get water. This woman has confessed that she wants whatever he's, whatever he's talking about, but she definitely still thinks we're still talking about some magical potion of water, right? It's not this living water he's really speaking of. It's some sort of water that will prevent her or help her from not having to come back to that spot and have to draw water out. Give me this water, she says. She's, she's, ex she's expressing her thirst, but to be honest with you, she doesn't even understand how thirsty she really is. And then she says, if I had this, I wouldn't have to come here. I don't want to come here anymore. Which is an interesting thing that Jesus kind of, I think, notices with her saying, because the next thing he says is, come and bring your husband here. What's up with here? Now, if you remember early on when we first began reading this story, this account, what time is it that she's out there drawing water? Noontime. Let me ask you, you think, you think that's the best time to draw water? No. It's hot. But she has a reason to show up at noon, which we will see in a moment. It's really hard to walk through this slowly. Slow. It's really tough <laughs> to not reveal why it is. And I know some, so many of you, most of you are probably very familiar with the story. But I want to walk through it. She doesn't want to come back here. It's noontime. It's hot. And if I could have this water that, that makes me never thirst again, I won't have to come back here. Jesus' response is, now, here's what's interesting. He, he, lets, he makes the promise of living water, but then he doesn't, like, force it. She kind of misses the point, and he goes with her. God is gracious when he deals with us, isn't he? He's gracious when he dealt with me. He continues to be gracious dealing with me. <laughs> Jesus' response is to bring your husband here, and it seems like a strange thing to say when she 
has a, definitely a misunderstanding of what he's talking about. You think he would take some time and be like, no, you don't get it. Let me explain, explain what living water is again. But Jesus recognizes the hardness of her heart, her inability to understand, and he asks for her, asks for her husband, full, fully knowing who she is, because right now he's doing surgery. He's going deeper. She's going, he's going to places where she doesn't necessarily want him to meddle, right? Jesus is cutting away at the heart, and he's showing herself to her. He's exposing her. He's revealing who she is. She says, I have no husband. He goes, you are absolutely correct. You have no husband. She's just trying to avoid the real thirst that she has, but in that statement, she sets up Jesus to reveal and expose her real thirst. Jesus acknowledges, yeah, you're right. You have no husband. Then he exposes her. The truth is, you have five husbands, and the person you're with now is not even your husband. See, the life that she lives reveals her real thirst, and he's getting down to the real thirst, the very thirst by which living water would actually apply. There is something inside of this woman, and I won't go into graphic detail because we, we can make our mind wander, but we don't have a whole lot of detail. But you can imagine that her life has left her to a place where she has to show up to the well at noon when nobody's around. She's been looking for satisfaction in the arms of men. Can I leave it like that? My, my teenage daughter's here. I don't really want to go into detail. Don't make the mistake that this sermon is about sex. This sermon is not about sex. I just want to see if any heads turn on the teenager section. Sex. No, they're good. This sermon is not about sex. It's not about promiscuity. It's about the heart. This message, this encounter is about her heart. This count, more so. Mm. Listen, I learned this in youth ministry, and it's true, uh, I guess, of adult ministry. We're just kind of finding this out together. Thank you for being my guinea pigs. Um, <laughs> behind every what, there is a Why? Oftentimes we see the what in people, but we fail to recognize that there is a why that drives that what, whether it's sex, whether it's addiction, whether it's achievement, whatever it is that drives us, that, that, that takes us away from really what God has called us to be and to do, there is a why. And oftentimes that why is based on a lie of who we believe we are, of what we believe defines us, what gives us value and worth. So behind every what is a why, behind every why is a lie. Jesus exposes her to herself, not to embarrass her, not to ridicule her, not to call her names and say, look at your life. He does it so that he could redeem her. He asks probing questions to get past the games that she's playing. I have no husband. Yeah, you're, you're telling the truth, but you're not telling the truth. He exposes her to get past the games that she's playing. But the games aren't over. This is the best part. Pick it up with me in verse 20. Verse 20. Sir, the woman said, you must... Oh, hold on. He says, you are right. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 because I want to read that again. He says, you're right. Did I even read the rest of that passage or did I get excited? Did I finish reading? No, I just jumped up and got excited. I told you that would happen. Hi, Mom. My mother-in-law came in last night, but I didn't see her, so thank you for bringing my children to church. Okay, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me why it is... Okay, so he calls her out. He says, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not even 
yours, you, sp- you definitely spoke the truth. Her response is, sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Now, we're supposed to be seeing ourselves in this woman. Do you see yourself in this woman? We have been confronted. Where's the candy, Where's the candy Manny? You know? And now we're using our words craftily to kind of avoid and sidestep to speak the truth, but in deceptive ways. She's already done that by saying she has no husband. But now, when he asks another question, once again, not to ridicule, not to, not to embarrass her, but to redeem her, she tries to switch the conversation up. You know what? Speaking of my adultery, let's talk about the proper place of worship. What are your thoughts? We do this, don't we? Or maybe you do it. You, you know this when you've talked to your friends about faith and about their life, about their questions, and you feel like they're so close and they want to be like, what happened to the dinosaurs? I can't believe in Jesus if I don't know the answer to the dinosaurs. Listen, I was a youth pastor for a very long time and the dinosaurs are like one of the favorite excuses to, to not surrender in faith. We find reasons to, to hold God at arm's length when he begins to penetrate the heart to meddle in areas we don't want him to meddle. So she says, tell me about true worship. Now Jesus, being gracious once again, just goes with it. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 let's stop and talk about this man issue. He lets her change the subject and he goes with it. But little does she know that she's walking right in to the real issue. She wants to talk about the proper place of worship and he wants to talk about proper worship as well. That was what she says. So Jesus' response in verse 21, since I, I apparently cannot finish reading every time I say, let's read. Verse 21, chapter 4. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether, the, whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Your issue really isn't Mount Gerizim or Mount Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming indeed, and it's here now, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus was baited into defending Jerusalem. He was baited by her as a distraction technique to say, let me, let me stand up for my Jewish heritage and, and Jerusalem's rightful place. But Jesus has already replaced the temple. We saw that. And he says, you know what? The time is coming. You know what? In fact, it's right now. Where God is looking for people who will worship, not in location or form, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus replaces the old with the new. Once again, spirit and truth instead of location and formality of of, of the worship that was given earlier. So the woman's issue is deeper than her behavior It's her heart that drives her behaviors. Are we seeing ourselves in this woman yet? Let me help you. Unlike this woman, maybe your issue is not sex. For some of you here, it may more more than likely is, but, but really sex isn't the issue. Or whatever the issue may be, what God wants to reveal, he wants us to see ourselves clearly. 
Maybe you see yourself in this woman in your old life, but now as a Christian, you know, you recognize, I don't do those things, but it's not about those things. It's not about behaviors. It's about the heart. We have a lot in common with the Samaritan woman, and I say that because I have things in common with the Samaritan woman. She is thirsty because she has failed to worship in spirit and truth, not location. And yet the remedy to her thirst is worship itself. There's one thing I want you to tweet out on this thing. It'd be this. The one thing I want you to remember. Worship is the reason and the remedy for your thirst. Worship is the reason and the remedy for your spiritual thirst. I believe it's possible to, to, to taste this living water, to have a spring well up with inside, inside of us, and to live this Christian life and no longer drink from the well. But we are created and made to be to deeply drink in and be satisfied by the well of living water within us. That's how we're wired. We are made to worship, and we're going to worship something if we don't worship Jesus. We're going to worship something if we don't worship the Creator. We are created that way. All of us are. We are wired to worship, but in our fallenness, we find other things to worship, whether it's success or pleasure or approval or achievement or love from one another. And I could go on and on and on of what essentially would be the idols of our life, those things that we center our life on, those things that w- which validate us, those things that give us our identity, those things that comfort us when we need comforting, those things that bring meaning to our lives. Those are idols. We have a profession of faith in Jesus. I believe we're saved. But we live for other things. Ultimately, all of my idols really just means that Jerome is on the throne of his heart. I'm the, I'm the biggest false god of my life. That sounds like a cult leader confession. That's not really. It's, I'm just being honest and being pastoral about this. See, if you don't know Jesus and you've never tasted this living water and you're just checking things out and you've centered your life on other things that have given definition to who you are and purpose to your being, then it's totally natural to chase after something that would define who you are. But as Christians who have drunk, drunk, who have taken in living water, If we fail to drink, it's not on God, it's on us. It's like a garden hose, and we take it and we kink it. And we say, Lord, I want want the gospel because of the bare minimum definition of the gospel, that this is my way not to go to hell, and I want to go to heaven. But the gospel is more than just getting out of hell. The gospel is about changing life. The gospel is about transformation. And so if we're not drinking from the living water, it's on us. I'm not saying this to bring guilt to anybody because I've already admitted that I have idols in my life they might just look different than yours. And as people who have tasted and know living water, not only are we idolaters, but we become spiritual adulterers. And if you're comfortable with your pastor saying, at times I'm a spiritual adulterer, and it's not because of sex. Believe it or not, the things that I sometimes can worship and put in the place of God is good things ministry. I, I, I went on the discipleship walk, and I can't tell you too much about it, because it's a secret society with hoods and stuff. Um, I'm just kidding. It's really not. Relax. Relax. 
It's, it's, it's an incredible weekend. You should go. But listen, I sat there with a the table with these guys, and they're talking about all the things that they've done. And for a moment, I was like, boy, these guys must think I'm just a goody two-shoes kind of guy. And I started feeling bad for myself for about half a second. And I stopped and said, guys, you know what? We are defining sin by our actions and our activities. I said, our sin is, is not behavior. It's the attitude and the condition of our heart. I said, you're talking about these bad deeds. I've done good deeds with just the same bad heart. I've used God to validate me rather than letting God in his own terms, validate me. I've used ministry to, to define who I am as a person. It eats pastors up. Can I get an amen from the, the pastors in this church? Yeah. It does. If my identity is not in Christ, if I let the attendance on a Sunday morning drive my ups and my downs, it's a crazy thing. If that's what defines me, if that's what I center my life on, and that's how pastors burn out and fail, That's why, well, I've talked enough about that. One of the evidences that we have that we are not drinking from this water of life is kind of the unstable life of chasing and craving. We move from one thing to the next, sinking to fill the void that only Jesus can fill, that only Jesus promises to fill. Whether it's the next job, the next haircut, the next achievement at work, the next adventure that we will mark off our list, the next spiritual high experience, the next ministry opportunity to validate myself, not necessarily just... We use, we use people to get our checkpoints, with, our, our brownie points with God instead of really serving people for people's sake. You, you get what I'm saying, right? Or may, am I just doing a pastoral confession here? Let me just say that when we chase and crave and chase, it reveals that we're not drinking. We're not finding our deepest satisfaction in Jesus. One of my favorite preachers to, I want to say plagiarize, but that's not true. One of my favorite preachers of whom I get inspiration, a guy named John Piper, and he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we find him and he's the treasure of our heart, when he is really the God on the throne. Not all change is bad. The Lord doesn't leave us where he found us. He leads us. He, he transforms us. He moves us. There's a difference between being led by the Spirit and being unstable and chasing all of the cravings and all the itches that we have to try to validate ourselves by serving whatever we think defines us. Good things, not just bad things. God gives us good things to enjoy, but once we lose the priority of, we become worshipers of the gift and not the giver. Worship is the reason and the remedy for your spiritual thirst, and if that's true, then what do we do? Let me give you a couple points of application as you walk out today. First of all, fight to keep Jesus the treasure of your heart. I use the word fight because I think joy is, is promised to us. But joy is also something we fight for. Because we are wired to find other things to, 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 to bring us joy, and we find those things leaving us unsatisfied, and then it just kind of 
feeds into our craving of wanting to find the next thing or more of that thing if it works for a little bit. And we, be, we, we go down roads, good behaviors and bad behaviors, but all, that, all of it is substitutes for Jesus. Let Jesus be the treasure of our heart. We have the fountain within us. Let's drink from that and find satisfaction there. Secondly, I'd say be honest with self when you're confronted with your idolatry or spiritual adultery, if you will. Unlike the woman who has all the excuses, who plays the fancy games with her words, may we allow Jesus to do surgery when he wants to do surgery. May we surrender when we are confronted. Because remember, we're not being confronted to be punished. As his children, if you are a believer, we are being confronted lovingly by a God who wants what's best for us. It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. May we allow him to cut away. May we be honest. That's kind of a dangerous thing, right? We could be honest. We could, be, we, could be, we could fool a lot of other people. Sometimes we could fool ourselves, but we can't fool him. When he, when he gives us a picture of who we are, may we be honest. Third, let me say, live in community. Relationships are critical in, in the Christian life, and Jesus does surgery, and I believe that Jesus does surgery through community. I, th- I believe that Jesus can speak through a message, but I really believe that Jesus does surgery in our hearts in community. And that's why one of the things that we're going to talk about at the Vision 2020 meeting, or one of the things that we're going to talk about as we move forward, is creating opportunities and environments where we fellowship together, where we grow together, where we live life together. Small groups is the word, and I know that small groups may not be your cup of tea, but can I just tell you there's an urgency, maybe not for you, but for some in our church, to find a way to connect beyond just coming on Sunday. I have an email that I want to read to you. Um, I have permission for this. This came into me on Thursday. Pastors don't like these emails, but I'm going to read it to you. Hey, Pastor Jerome, I want to get together with you, but my work schedule has been crazy lately. I want to let you know that our family won't be attending Radiant anymore. I hate it because, name of spouse, my spouse and I really enjoy getting to know you and Heather. We're just not connected at the church, especially I'm not. The season of life we're in is really, we really value relationships with others, and I'm not connecting at all, and neither is my wife. My work makes it a struggle also, and as we live a little further away, we feel like it would be right to look for something closer where we could connect more. The issue is not geography. That's just an excuse there because he's already said the issue is connection. Again, we really have enjoyed getting to know your family, but we feel we shouldn't be reason to stay at Radiant when we're not connecting. I appreciate you so much and hope the best for your family and ministry. I mean, like, I don't like that letter, but at least it wasn't like we're leaving because we hate you. This is a young family that likes this church and likes you, but hasn't found a connection because what we have, what we don't have is those avenues and those ways for that to happen. So if we talk about change that's to come in the next year, recognize it's not change for change's sake. It's not change because we want to be like the cool church down the street. I'm your pastor. We will never be the cool church, okay? Just saying. If we make changes, we need to make changes for the sake of the mission that God's put us on. 
to see people come to Jesus and see people connected in community and living out and growing and making disciples. So don't get scared when I say we're going to talk about small groups. If you're happy and you have a home and you know everybody here, you don't need a small group, that's great. But there are people who do. I'm one of those people. And so is my friend here on this paper. He's not here. May we live in community. And can I just say this? Jesus does surgery as we interact and live with one another. There are times where Jesus will use you to ask that probing question that he would be asking. But can I just warn you, you're not the Holy Spirit. And if you do, and and if you feel the sense like the Spirit's leading you, do so with fear and trembling, recognizing that you have a log in your own eye. Please don't. No one's commissioning you to be the Holy Spirit. So do so with fear and trembling. But God does absolutely use community to do surgery at our heart, to cut away those idols. I want to finish by uh, inviting the band to come up here. I want to read the very end of this account. What happens next is... The disciples come and they're like shocked that that he's talking to the Samaritan woman for all the reasons we talked about at the very beginning of this message. And she goes away and tells everybody in the town about her, about Jesus. Come see this guy who has told me everything. Let me read to you what takes place. And the interesting part is, and this is a whole other sermon if I wanted it to be, but I don't want to be stuck on John chapter 4 for six months. Um, Jesus gives a little lesson in, the in, between, in between time. We didn't really move to another scene here. She leaves and goes to t- and tells people about Jesus. And Jesus talks to his disciples about the harvest, about sowing and reaping, about how the harvest is ready. Read with me the very end of this chapter, well, the very end of this, this section, starting in verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. Here is your first cross-cultural missionary in Scripture. You thought it was Paul. She goes, having tasted, having put her faith in Jesus, who declares himself the Messiah, and I'm afraid I, I skipped over reading that. She's tasted this living water, and she's going to share this living water, and she says, see what he has done. Go see for himself. Let me read. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for eight days, or for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then he said to the woman, Now we believe not just because of what you told us, because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't it amazing that there are like hardened religious people that don't give Jesus a hearing, and then you have these outcasts, these people who are to be avoided in the reception that they have for Jesus. We are called, like this woman, to allow God to do surgery in us and then point to the one who will do surgery that our heart would be a heart of worship because it's the reason for our thirst and it's the remedy to our thirst. Would you stand with us to sing this song because this song recites the good news of the gospel. This song will tell us nothing that was new for most of us. Most of us know the truths that are explained in this song but what it does is it allows for us to further drink 
that when we leave this place, we will, we will share and point to Jesus. I don't want to just gather together on a Sunday morning to check off our religious exercise. I told this to the... I'm not just here to dole out religious experiences, and I hope you're not here just to consume them. We are a living organism. We are the body of Christ. We represent him to this world. May we drink. May we allow him to cut away. And may we go out and point to him. Let's sing this song. It just dawned on me that I probably should tell you that that, that gentleman who sent me the, the, the email, we're going to get together and talk. I think God's going to do some things in this church to connect us in ways that maybe we're not connected. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you've been here a long time. Maybe you need that. Or maybe that's the very thing that you're, you're wanting to make sure you, you kind of hold at arm's length. Lord, may your will be done. May you have your way in this place. May you have your way in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you later.